Forbes, CNN, Fast Company, The New York Post, and even Town & Country claim that Masterclass is one of this year's top holiday gifts. The streaming platform offers lessons from the best in their fields, delivering, according to its website, a world-class online learning experience. We decided to follow suit and offer a Fund for Teachers Masterclass on crafting a successful grant proposal. Our expert, four-time fellow, Chris Dolgos. Welcome to Fund for Teachers, the podcast. I'm Carrie Caton, and the goal of each episode is to elevate teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. Today, we're learning from Chris Dolgos, a sixth grade teacher at Genesee Community Charter School in Rochester, New York. In addition to receiving Fund for Teachers grants in 2003, 2006, 2015, and 2020, which he deferred until this summer, Chris also regularly reviews grant proposals as part of our selection committees, and he is an inaugural member of our Educator Advisory Council. History and geography are two passions he brings to life in his classroom through fieldwork, guest experts, and product-driven curriculum. He has contributed to EL Education's publications and Common Core curricular efforts, and is a New York Educator Voice Fellow. He's also the recipient of EL Education's Klingenstein Award nominated by peers and presented to one educator within the national network who stands out for their remarkable service to their school community, as well as their persistence in passionately developing students with character who excel academically and contribute to making the world a better place. If you're looking for tips on submitting the most compelling fund for teachers proposal possible, keep listening. Chris Dolgos, multiple time fellow, and also on our Educator Advisory Council really a veteran of our mission and of extending our mission. And so, Chris, I want to ask you about your fellowships because they are so unique, each one of them. You're a sixth grade teacher, correct? Yeah. At our school, sixth grade is kind of like a generalist. So we we teach it all. So let's just start there then and describe the breadth and depth of the four fellowships that you've pursued. It all comes back to what do I want to learn in service of the students? So my first one, uh, as a second grade teacher, we were learning about local birds, um, bird habitats, and conservation of, of wild spaces. And so I did a my first Fund for Teachers fellowship. I went to Hawk Mountain in Pennsylvania, and I participated in the fall migration count at Cape May, New Jersey. And those two events not only fed my passion for being a naturalist already, but it really helped me understand how do I break this concept down for kids so they can understand it and we can use it as a service project in our own community. So working with the experts at Hawk Mountain really helped me find out what is it the most essential thing that students need to know? Then how do I connect with local experts doing this work, knowing what I know now about conservation and how can my students be involved? So we created a whole expedition, a project-based learning plan that lasts about 12 weeks, all about the birds. And we focused on the kestrel, which is a very small falcon native to North America, actually all over the world, because it's endangered in our area or threatened in this area because of habitat loss. So we did a whole case study around the kestrel, what it is, what it needs. And then the students decided to build boxes and put them up in local parks um, and fields to try and secure habitat. And then we also used a little arts integration and created our own play, but it was a movement play. It was dance. So our dance teacher choreographed the piece with the students and they learned about the life cycle of the bird. 
They learned about Habitat. They composed their own music. It was amazing. And that was way back 2006, I think. You teach in New York. And so going to Pennsylvania wasn't that far of a, of a jump. But then you went a little bit farther for your second fellowship. I did. I moved up the ranks to fifth grade. And one of our fifth grade expeditions is looking at human archaeology and anthropology, understanding what it means to be human. And so we really wanted to look at this idea of like, so what defines what human is? Uh, One of the core concepts we have to teach is evolution. So we wanted to look at the evolution of the human species and homo sapiens and where we came from. So I decided to kind of turn it on its head and look at all the other humans that came before us. So I focused on the Neanderthal. And so I proposed to go to the Neander Valley in Germany and study at the Neanderthal Museum um, and then go to France to where some of the early Homo sapiens caves were and look at the actual cave art. Um, One of the things I think that makes us human is our creativity and our uh, propensity to create and produce things, Um, whether they're arrowheads or cave paintings, Uh, humans have this need to create and share their story. So I wanted to share my story with my students as what does it mean to be, you know, an archeologist, an anthropologist, a scientist studying what it means to be human? What does it mean to be an artist? And so we worked with our art teacher again when we came back to really kind of unpack this idea of human creativity. Um, And we were able to kind of create some really fun uh, products around identity um, and this is our, our school's first kind of step into what does it mean to kind of study yourself. And from that point on, I realized I didn't know enough about myself. So I did my own self-work. Um, who am I and what am I interested in? Uh, who am I as a teacher? And then we help the students kind of unpack who they are. At this point, I've moved on to sixth grade. And we started doing a lot of identity work, a lot of understanding of what it means to look at other people's perspectives, walk in their shoes, develop empathy and compassion. And one of our case studies around at that point was looking at ancient civilizations and how did we get where we are today and what can we be grateful for that they've passed forward? And so we usually do a little case study on ancient Rome. So my third fund for teachers, I thought, huh. This whole idea of empire and taking things over, we have this propensity as humans not only to create, but also to destroy and to take things that don't belong to us. Our class decided that we really wanted to kind of focus on what's going on here in our community. Why are there so many barriers between people? So we developed a Bridges and Barriers expedition to really look at what are the things that get in the way of people communicating openly and honestly and understanding one another. So that case study took me to Hadrian's Wall to understand why did the Romans build this wall to keep people out? And it helped me as a teacher understand all the misconceptions I had about Hadrian's Wall and who the Romans were. Hadrian's Wall was built to be porous by design because they needed the trade from the people in the north. It was as much to keep people in as it was to keep people out. But there was still this idea exchange, this creativity exchange, language, religion, It all meshed in England, where I went to go study um, about Hadrian's Wall. And then when we brought it back, the students were able to understand where the barriers in our community, either the physical barriers, like literally across the train tracks, that that is not an expression that we can take lightly because it's so true, or expressways. Why were expressways built through Black neighborhoods in the 1950s? Why are the poorest communities the ones with the fewest number of trees? So the kids could start looking at some of the barriers, but kind of connected back to what are the physical barriers that kept people apart in the ancient world? 
how did they fall down or where, how are they taken down? And so we really kind of unpack that whole idea of like, what does it mean to be a community? How do we help one another? How do we build bridges and tear down the barriers? Actually kind of like sparked me thinking about things differently. I've always been a history fan and a history nerd and teaching history is like a passion of mine, but it was the first time I was like, the kids can get into this. Like they can center themselves as historians, as storytellers, as story collectors. And so when we went into the community to collect the stories of other people, they really got to understand a completely different perspective, a completely different view on what our community is. As a charter school, we take students from across the city. So students were able to go to their own communities and understand their own neighborhoods and understand their wealth, like what assets they had. You know, we always think about things that don't exist, the deficit view of, of neighborhoods, but there are assets. There's a lot of richness going on in all of our neighborhoods that we tend to discount because it doesn't look like where we come from. Mm -hmm. uh, so it helped kids kind of blow up stereotypes, kind of challenge their preconceptions of who people are, how people think, how people live and build empathy for neighbors, which I think is what we really wanted to do. Five years later, which is now our waiting period for teachers you took something that was endemic to your community and then extrapolated it overseas. So can you talk a little bit about what spawned that idea in your community and then where you took it? So as I mentioned, we've been kind of as a school unpacking this whole idea of identity and helping the kids understand who they are, their connections with one another. And as teachers, we've been doing a little bit of the, the work that needs to be done to kind of decolonize the curriculum and look at some anti-racist practices and abolitionist practices that will really help decenter teacher voice and kind of raise up teacher uh, student voice. About the same year that we were doing the Bridges and Barriers expedition, we had a local artist and she created several statues of Frederick Douglass that were placed in historic spots in our community that represented different stages of his life. The one closest to our school was where his daughter attended school, but was shunned because she was a black student. So it's a profound kind of monument. And then there was some vandalism and it was torn down and people were kind of shocked that this is like, consider Frederick Douglass our hometown hero. He's not originally from here, but he called this place home. And so we went as a class to see the restoration and the reinstallation of the statue. And it really got me thinking about, I don't know enough about Frederick Douglass and his story. Most students do know about Frederick Douglass. It's part of our state core curriculum, but he was a bit of a firebrand. He called people out. You know, if you can't support this movement, then you need to get out of the way and let the people who are going to do it, do it. Um, he was an amazing writer, orator, um, an amazing human being. Um, and I wanted to know more about him. And I thought as I'm developing this on my professional life um, as a teacher, how do I kind of decenter myself and unlearn some of my own biases? I thought, wouldn't it be fascinating to learn about Frederick Douglass's journey? How did he become the abolitionist he became? One of the things that he's famous for is being a friend of John Brown and the raid on Harper's Ferry. John Brown came to Frederick Douglass, spoke with him about his plans. Frederick Douglass didn't really encourage him, but also didn't tell him, don't do it. It's a bad idea. Um, but because he was affiliated with him, um, the federal government wanted a word with him. Because of his affiliation with John Brown, it wasn't safe for him to be in the United States. So he decided to take his show on the road and go to England. I wanted to know why. Why England? Why not just Canada? You know, Canada's a lot closer. They weren't going to 
turn people back at that point. Um, I also wanted to know a little bit more about the people who bought his freedom while he was there. He went there um, to speak, but he also was there to raise money. Uh, not for himself at first, but he raised money enough to start the North Star newspaper based on his speaking tours in Ireland and England. And I wanted to know more about um, his reception there. Why did those people find his story so fascinating when in the United States he was villainized? And what connections can we make to the contemporary Black Lives Matter movement um, and to the abolitionist decolonization movement that education is, is kind of facing right now? And so my proposal was to kind of follow in his footsteps, you know, read his journal entries, go to the places he spoke um, and connect with the contemporary organizations in both Ireland and England that are doing the anti-racist education that needs to be done. Um, so all students feel safe in school, feel included, their stories are being told, their identities are being accepted in full with, um, without reservation and bring that back to my own community and find out what can we continue to do to honor Douglas's legacy in the city of Rochester and within the network of schools that we belong to? So for those listening, don't be intimidated by Chris and what he has done and what his students have accomplished. Be inspired. I think that's the, the takeaway from hearing about your four fellowships uh, because it's incredible. Uh, and I'll just add that you're going, you had a 2020 grant for the Frederick Douglas Fellowship and you'll be pursuing that this summer. That's right. Okay, so now let's step back a little bit. Our theme for this year is Curiosity Launches Learning. And it was very evident to me as you spoke that that is true of your fellowships as well. I wanted to know, I realized I didn't know enough. This prompted me as I thought that maybe I should, if I'm asking this of the students, I need to know more. Is that kind of the cornerstone of of what you would say is key to a fellowship? I don't want to put words in your mouth. That just seems so prominent in, in hearing you describe your fellowship. I often tell my friends I am unapologetically curious. I, I, I just soak in history, science, nature, math, everything around me. I'm just curious about how the world works, how people think, um, why things are the way they are. And so I always look for entry points for students when they have inquiry-based kind of topics that they want to know more about. How does it align to our core curriculum? Um, as I mentioned earlier, it was like, you know, I kind of started with myself. I need to know who I am as I plan for these journeys, but I, I'm always keeping the kids in mind too. How can I center their voices? How is this experience going to translate into something they can accomplish um, it's one thing as an adult to travel and learn. It's something very different to translate that into a teachable moment for students and to have them learn about it and be able to teach others and pay it forward that way. So I always think about the students I have in front of me and all their diverse forms. What is it that they need to learn based on either standards or our school's curriculum? Who are they as people and how am I going to engage them? What are their passions? What are their interests? What are their fears? How can I connect as much as what I've learned to what they need to learn? So making sure that the kids get authentic learning experiences is forefront in my mind. So how can I center student voice and agency? How can I use what I know to help them learn more and teach others in our community, in our school, in our own classroom? What you said about how to translate that learning to students it's my experience that fellows say that's really the hardest part. And I think that shows up in the proposals that we receive as well, because when you get down into the application and 
how are you applying this to your students and then to your school community? Teachers who have not thought that through specifically, those proposals tend to break down. So if you can put on your alumni hat, your reader hat, what would you advise people who are applying to really be able to beef up those those areas of the application? Yeah, I think the strongest applications I've read um, are teachers who, number one, know themselves really well. They know their strengths. They know their weaknesses. Um, they know their capacity for learning. They know their capacity for innovation. Those who are not sure about how they're going to attack this or how they're going to approach this tend to write in very broad strokes. And you don't get enough specific to understand what is it that you're going to do that's either going to transform who you are as an educator or who you are as a learner. And if that's not present, it's really hard to understand how is that going to impact students in your classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of that, you got to know the kids. You got to know the folks who come to your school, who sit in your classroom. And it is a little hard because you're kind of envisioning the next year out because you're writing in December. You don't know who's going to be in front of you next fall, but you have an idea based on the people who are coming to your school, the families, um, the relationships you've built with the community and in the neighborhood. And I think all great teachers know their kids, whether they've had them yet or not. I think they know kids really well. They know what makes them tick. They know how to engage. They know how to push in all the right ways. They know when to step back and let them step up. Um, and giving kids a sense of ownership, I think, is really powerful. And I think, you know, that's one thing that we don't teach in education schools is <laughs> how to give student agency. It's really something you have to fumble forward and kind of figure out on your own. But I think a fun for teachers application, when well-written, centers students always. And you you know when it nails it. Um, I'm thinking back to a couple a couple of years ago, I remember reading one, somebody who wanted to go to Europe to learn um, about local, about artists in the, and I don't think it was the Renaissance, may have been the Renaissance. And the whole idea was make the kids the master artists. And how do I get the kids to understand how important it was to not so much the painting and the technique, but understand this whole idea of a patron and to understand how all of these areas kind of developed their own kind of um, subculture within the Renaissance of schools of painting, of um, different ways of expressing themselves. And I was just blown away. It's like, oh, this idea of patronage and, you know, having an apprentice and learning about these things. And I, I do believe it was connected to more of a vocational education. And I thought that's a brilliant way to kind of reframe that, mm-hmm. that apprenticeships have been going on for hundreds of years. Um, and vocational education is just carrying that forward versus the application that just talks about, I want to learn about Renaissance painters because I have to teach about Renaissance painters and it connects to my high school curriculum. And I'm going to go here and I'm going to learn this and we're going to do a book report. And it's like, mm, good for you, but let's think about is a book report going to best serve your students or is a bio, by writing a biography of a Renaissance painter going to really serve your students best? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really about like, how do you elevate student voice? How do you elevate student choice and how do you equip them with the tools and the knowledge that you've gained from this experience? Any other macro or micro suggestions? Hmm. Good question. The one that I always read and it's always seems like people don't know how to respond is like, how am I going to share this information? 
outside of my classroom or my school. And it is challenging. So how do you communicate what you've done with a broader audience? And, you know, teachers don't like to toot their own horn. I don't either. I'm, you know, we're not, even though we're public speakers every single day, we are not like, we don't want to be in the spotlight at all. But this is the opportunity where we should step outside of our comfort zone and we should celebrate what our students have done. And this is where you need to say, hey, we're having an exhibition night based on, you know, this awesome work that our class did. Um, thank you to Fund for Teachers for this opportunity. Write the press release, get your principal on board with it. Invite members of your board of education to come into the classroom or to that presentation of learning, whatever, however it looks in your school. Local businesses want to see what's going on in schools too. So don't be shy about sharing your successes. I think that's an easy way. It's an easy one to write a really quick sentence saying, oh, we're going to have a family night and we're going to share it in a classroom museum. Well, that's all fine and good. Think bigger, think broader. Think about writing for fun for teachers because uh, you're going to do a final report, but you can also write a blog post. Uh, you could do a future podcast. Share what you know best because people want to learn from you. They want to learn from your successes as well. Mm-hmm. I don't want to end on something negative, but is there anything that stands out that you would definitely say, do not do this? Ah, uh, yeah. If it reads like a junket, you're probably not going to get funded. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we all want to travel and go places that are sunny or fun or a conference that you wanted to go to forever. You know, I remember a couple of years, a bunch of people wanted to go to the AVID national conference in the summer. And I must have read seven different proposals about that, each one a little different, but the ones that stood out, put the kids first. Here's why I'm doing this. It's all about my students. Here's what my students need from this experience, as opposed to the ones who say, and while we're there, we're going to go visit this place and we're going to go to have this thing. And don't give us an itinerary of all the cool places you're going to go. Let us know what you're planning to learn and how that's going to transform your classroom experiences for kids. Yeah, that's interesting because we talk about sometimes kind of tongue in cheek, but saying really it's we're, we're fun for students because we are investing in the teachers and we're the nationally unique in that we invest in the teacher and then believe that by doing that, then it impacts thousands and thousands of students. So economically, the most sound investment is in the teacher, but it is for them to grow personally and professionally and to impact their students. Um, That's right. So it's really like a little ecosystem of education. Oh, that's beautifully said. I love that. Thank you for all of your words. I know that you are running in from school and you have parent-teacher conferences now. So thank you as always for answering our call. I will say that all of his applications are also have been blind. We don't know who writes what. We don't know where they teach, but the cream just always rises to the top with Chris Dolgus. So thanks, Barry. I appreciate it. We look forward to using this podcast to elevate more teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. But you can learn from 9,000 Fun for Teachers fellows now by visiting funforteachers.org slash blog, or check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you want to reach an engaged audience of educators, share your event or product in this podcast by becoming a sponsor. Connect with listeners as they tune in to be inspired by the groundbreaking work our fellows are accomplishing individually and in the classroom. Contact info at Fund for Teachers for more information. And finally, thank you Fund for Teachers fellow Chris Dolgas for talking to us about his four fellowships, 
their impact on students in the school community, and for his insight into crafting a successful Fund for Teachers proposal. You still have plenty of time to begin your 2022 grant application. Learn more at fundforteachers.org. I'm Carrie Caton. Thank you for joining us today at Fund for Teachers, the podcast. Until next time, keep learning.